This is a world of hidden mics and two-way mirrors. A world where nothing is private. You think we can do this? Later in the week. Harry Call is an expert. The best there is. Let me tell you something about Harry Call. The best bar none. I'll drink to that. Best what? The best bugger on the West Coast. What about me? He can bug anybody, anytime, anywhere. Nobody knows how you did it, though, Harry. It was the hell of a scandal, too. Look, do you see him? The man with the hearing aid, like Charles. He's been following us all They're not people to him, just voices. Three people were murdered, that's all. He doesn't know them, and they don't know him. Uh, it had nothing to do with me. I mean, I just turned in the tapes. Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. I've been involved in some work that I think, I think will be used to hurt these two young people. Responsible. I, I'm not responsible. I'm... You're not supposed to feel anything about it. You're just supposed to do it. Be careful, Harry. You're just supposed to listen. Not look. Not feel. Not care. Conversation. There is nothing private about the conversation. Listen. My name is Harry Call. Can you hear me? It's so great to be back with you guys uh, a little peek behind the curtain sometimes sometimes we record not necessarily in the order that uh, that you guys are listening to it but uh sometimes there's a little gap and in our recording schedule but now we're here together it feels like it's been a while and i'm so happy to be back in the studio here at recon cinema studios with you guys uh welcome back to another episode of recon cinemation i'm john diner I'm David Munchak. And I'm Brent Hutchins. And this is the podcast that takes a look back at some of our favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And we're checking out how and if they hold up today in, uh, in the modern era. So, And today, we are going to look back at one of, uh, one of the, I guess, one of the early films from the 70s from my favorite period of American cinema. We're going to have a conversation about the conversation. The conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well done. So 
this is uh this is an interesting film and i hadn't actually seen it in a while it's probably been maybe 15 years since i've seen the conversation Hmm. and it was it was uh we're gonna get into it but I definitely saw it from a little bit of a different perspective than I have before. Um, you know, as you guys know, I love the seventies American cinema, uh, movement the, the new Hollywood wave from what about 1967 ish to the early eighties. And, and this is a Francis Ford Coppola film. Would you say, would you say Coppola is like the number one guy from that period of time? Definitely. Coppola yeah. number one. With, I have no evidence to back that up. But yes. <laughs> Coppola, Scorsese. I don't know. I like yeah. Scorsese a lot, but it he feels, was like later, later, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole that whole list of of directors. You know, th- there's a lot of people who've kind of been forgotten. You know, you don't hear Brian De Palma talked about very often anymore. You don't hear about Bob Rafelson. You know, Hal Ashby's long gone, but. The, the big survivors, you know, Scorsese and, and Coppola are like the big directors whose names really survived and their films are still considered the, you know, overall the best. But of course, you've got, you know, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, who are probably the biggest winners overall from that, that period of time. If you talk about blockbusters and financially speaking and, you know, overall, their films are going to last forever, where... You know, two hundred years from now, if humans still exists, they'll still be watching Star Wars. I don't know if they'll be watching Mean Streets or Taxi Driver. Probably some, but Star yeah, Wars yeah. is probably going to make it. <laughs> probably I mean, so. Yeah, I mean, they'll still be in the uh, Library Congress and everything. You know, they'll exist somewhere. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, these things are. It, it's like anything. Pop culture kind of is always ruling the ruling what's out there and um these things uh you know are always available but not quite uh popular so i could see this i could see this one maybe continuing to survive right yeah well this is this is part of that uh you know this is that in the prime of coppola's career really i mean we'll, we'll get into the details here shortly but uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not sure this one has the same legs as as you know, The Godfather one and two, and probably even Apocalypse Now. But it's an interesting film, and uh, yeah. there's a lot, a lot, a lot involved with it. And you know, as everybody knows, you know, a lot of these films we watch relate to our relationship with each other. And little known fact, before we started Recon Cinema Studios, the three of us were on a uh, surveillance squad together. That's where we met. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, Brent was the guy in the truck. <laughs> Brent was the guy in the truck and David and I were out in the field, microphones in bags. And that's what we did. And that's uh, while we edited together, that's we talked about movies and decided to do this podcast instead. So it came together. <laughs> yeah. That so, scene, uh, I know we're going to dive into it, but that scene, I, I, it was kind of funny because they just kept going in and out of the van like not not really being very covert at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was you know vans these days vans are always a little suspicious. Back then it was like no, that's just adult males climbing in and out of this inconspicuous van. 
Well, and it was like a glass van that had mirrors on the side that actually some of the writing was basically like, come check yourself out in this mirror. Like they wanted people to see the van. Yeah. Yeah. Because they were kind of pervy on the inside. Yeah. (laughs) A little snapping close-ups of these girls. A little creepy there. Uh, When was the first time you guys saw this movie? We'll start with with Brent. How about you? Uh, I don't know exactly. It it would have been growing up. I'm sure I saw it on on television um, as a child sometime uh, when I was growing up. But I I didn't really resonate with me at all. Um, So really seeing it this last time getting ready for the podcast was was kind of a, a real refresher and kind of reminded me uh, about it. Jogged, jogged a couple of the memories loose there. But, uh, you know, it wasn't one that, that I remember seeing necessarily as a kid that really stuck around much. Mm-hmm. David, how about you? Uh, uh, to college. Um, I was college. Thinking, I was with my liberal arts uh, education. I had to take some communications classes. Took film as art one year uh, i think back so i saw this late 99 early 2000 and uh in that class and uh yeah i don't know uh the only before watching it again for the the podcast it was the first and only time i'd seen it or had even heard of it and then i'm like ready to watch it for the podcast and i'm like i think it like takes place in britain <laughs> and like <laughs> I think it's a, oh, it's like Gene Hackman and a bunch of British people. Like, ugh, not looking forward to this. <laughs> it's like, no, San Francisco. That's hilarious. <laughs> I couldn't write. I mean, that, you know, that opening courtyard in the mime, I think, um, I think colored it for me. Cause I remember, I remember the, I remember that, you know, it's such a great opening sequence uh, for the film. But I think in my head, because there was a mime around, like, clearly not in america yeah. clearly it's paris <laughs> yeah it lends it lends itself well to get confused with the french connection yeah right yeah <laughs> so so you doubted the hack i mean i couldn't i couldn't remember what i was getting into i don't i don't even remember if if i liked the movie then i think i think the, i think i'm a little i don't know how i feel about the ending so we'll get we'll get into it well well the hack is back uh, well, last year <laughs> Last year we had Hackathon 2020 and we looked at Night Moves, we looked at the French Connection, we looked at Hoosiers, and then we touched touched on, on the hack again with Wyatt Earp. Here we are uh, looking at the conversation. And this movie, I actually thought about this when we were when we were covering colors last week, starring Robert Duval, little tie-in with Duval back in this film, too. I saw this movie for the first time. So we've spoken about it before on the show, but my background in being educated about 70s American cinema was through my uncle who was in the film business and sat me down and plopped a bunch of laser discs in the summer of 96 right in front of me (laughs) and said, you're watching all of these. So uh, I went through so many of them there. This was actually not one of them. Uh, I didn't catch this one until about a year later. It was, de- I definitely had seen it by the time we went to college and met up Brent. Um, so I think I, I remember I had the videotape and I know I got it from Suncoast Motion Picture Company. And this one was so different because I had, I had, I was such a big Godfather fan and watching this one, this is a much more 
avant-garde kind of film. It's so different from uh, Coppola's other films from GF1, GF2, Apocalypse Now. They're, they're, this one really stands out as it feels so much more independent. And, and, and it is. I mean, it, this movie couldn't have been made if not for the success of The Godfather. There's just no like this is this is this is the movie directors do after they win best picture when they have that huge hit and they have the the clout to say what they're you know call their own shots this is the kind of movie they do and it's having loved those those movies from the new hollywood era so much it really is interesting to see how they hold up today because there's so many things as much as I loved some of them for, you know, all of this time watching them now and looking at things, you know, how, how sexist and racist and, and all, all that, that some of these are, it's some of them, it's a struggle. Mm-hmm. And this one, we'll talk about kind of where this one ranks, ranks in all of it. But, um, you know, for those who haven't uh, seen the film or seen it in a while, roughly uh, it's about, a surveillance expert played by Gene Hackman, who is hired to listen into a conversation between a man and a woman walking through. Uh, I, what's the name of that park in San Francisco? I, f- I forgot the name of it, but it's a, a, a big park. One of the, the biggest parks in San Francisco, I think, as they're maybe not the biggest, but it's a park in San Francisco. It's a park? <laughs> it just seems like it's a courtyard. I guess it's a park. I think it's I think it's part of a park, though. Okay. Uh, so anyway, uh, they're, yeah. yeah, so they're, as they go through and he's records this conversation and he thinks it's about one thing, but as he gets deeper into this story about who this man and woman are and what their relationship is, the entire perspective changes by the end of the film, that it's about something entirely different than what he thought. Uh, it's so, you know, this is the beginning of the, the, 70s paranoia films are you guys are you guys a fan of those no i think they kind of stress me out a little anxiety inducing isn't it yeah man i don't i don't like to feed into that i don't think i don't think it's for me <laughs> what are some of the other ones so you've got clute you've got uh three days of the condor marathon man all the president's men uh, you know a lot of those are really born out of the mistrust of the government and that big brother is watching kind of tone that was so prevalent and in, in post Vietnam. A lot of this is, you know, related to Nixon and Watergate and America's reaction to that. And it was being exuded through film and at a period of time where these directors uh, from new Hollywood had, complete control over their films. I don't know if we'll ever see an era like that again. You know, the, by this point, the studio system had mostly failed uh, for, for the most part that, you know, they were making these big studio pictures that were just less and less interesting for the most part. And, and uh, these d- young directors came in at the same time that these young studio executives were taking over and, and, took chances on them on the Dennis Hoppers and the Scorsese's and Coppola's and William Friedkin's and Bogdanovich's. So as they came in and, uh, and their films were so heavily influenced from 
Godard and Truffaut and, and the French new wave that we're sort of doing an American version of it while being completely fresh, you know, a new wave of actors, you know, the John Waynes of the, of the world really started to get pushed aside and either didn't go away entirely, but that was sort of the end of their prime. Um, and, and the studios moved away from the massive amounts of Westerns and, uh, you know, just general studio pictures, like all of these films, they're studio films, but they feel like independent films. And the directors had complete control. They had control over the edit. They were, uh, the, the studio allowed them to do it. If you read the, the book that I make everybody that works for me read <laughs> Easy Riders Raging Bulls by Peter Biskin, that gets into great detail about what was really going on. And sort of in time order too. that how these young lions took over the business and, and what happened after that, that some of them succeeded and some of them failed and some of them died and some their careers ended by 1980 completely. And uh, it, it got excessive and out of control, but this is the conversation falls in the earlier part of it, which is still everything's sort of on the rise. And uh how, how, where, where does Coppola rank for you guys in particular? Is he, you know, I think by this point, you guys have seen most of his bigger films, correct? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> most of his bigger films. Sure. Um, Coppola. I mean, Godfather's great. Godfather 2 is greater, I think. Is that, is that, that's how you, you rank him 2, 1, 3? Well, forget uh, three, two, one, two, one, two, one. And then the timeline version of them allows me to enjoy three. So mm. if you watched it in, in the, in the, I, I think you introduced this whole idea to me using the laser discs, I think. I did. <laughs> even, oh, wow. Yeah. Even where, where you watch them in, in timeline order, like they're all cut together in the correct timeline. And in that, presentation part three can exist when it's just on their own i think three is better left alone like left off the left off the list uh but as far as coppola it's like those two movies american graffiti and then everything else is like uh, okay i don't know maybe yeah well that's so what you're talking about is called the godfather saga yeah thank you so that's chronological order one two so it's it's Really, it's the it's the De Niro stuff first. Then you do Godfather one. Then you do the Pacino stuff from Godfather two, and then three, untouched. Three is just there. Oh. <laughs> uh, it, it's I think that's really the way to watch that those movies. It 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 feels like one in, in that respect. It feels like one giant story, and it all flows. Even three, it, it makes sense when watched in that context. Right. It takes a weekend. To, to watch that, but, at least a weekend <laughs> but it's absolutely worth your time what about has anybody seen the new godfather the new cut of godfather 3 no nope i did dislike you, oh you thumbs did. down is it, is it worse than the original cut i i had high expectations for it based on the reviews and and pacino and and diane keaton speaking out for it and saying that they they felt why it was better and they had said why 
And I watched it and I did not feel that way at all. I feel like it definitely made it worse. They cut certain things out and they, what they did was more of a re-edit and, and juggled some scenes around uh, trying to make more sense of the plot. And I, I don't think he achieved that goal. That's tough. Mm. It's tough. But it's uh, an interesting experiment. Yeah, that, why not, you know, to go back in and remix it a little bit and, and, and you know, why not give it a try? Right? Yeah. You know, all, all these creators are doing that now, these directors, right? Yeah. So maybe you can tighten it up, see what you can do. Well, and there's there's so much. Godfather 3, I mean, God, we even though it's not a great film, we could probably do an entire episode just on that because there's, there is so much to talk about why it doesn't work and what caused it and what things outside of what was on screen was happening that caused that. But so you think we could do a whole episode on a, a whole movie like Godfather three that, <laughs> that we mean we can spend more than three hours just, just talking about we what should. was wrong with it. Oh, okay. <laughs> like we should do one whole episode on like one movie. That'd be crazy. <laughs> We would never do that. <laughs> uh, but rewinding. So this is uh, Coppola coming off of Godfather 1, which is massive success at the time of its release. It was the, the highest grossing film of all time, uh, you know, and was was just huge. It was it really helped usher in Coppola as like it, it seemed like he was the leader of the new Hollywood wave. He was very outspoken and was probably the most public of all the directors followed by maybe Friedkin and then Bogdanovich and Scorsese. But, you know, it always felt like to me that he was kind of the poster boy for, for these films. And, and it was a miracle that Godfather one, you know, they're, they're actually making a movie right now or starting the process about the making of the Godfather, which should be interesting. Uh, it's a great story. But the success of that movie is what allowed him to do uh, to do the conversation. And you look at that Godfather one in 72, the conversation and Godfather two in 74 has, has a director had that consecutive of a hot streak, but before to that level, I mean, in what a three year period, having three sort of iconic movies, boom, 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 you know, and not, uh, really not any dips in there. Like it's all at a consistently extremely high level of quality. How much time was between Jaws, Close Encounters and E.T.? Well, but yeah, that's like seven years. And then you got that, 1941 okay. in there. Oh yeah, good point. Yeah. So that was, that was the movie that Hollywood wanted Spielberg to fail on. And then he came back with Raiders. Right. Right. But yeah, I, I can't think of any other director just off the top of my head that had, you know, a one, two, three punch here that it, that works on, on such a strong level. It's a good kicking in the door for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and the, you know, the success of, uh, you know, I don't know, this film was not quite as successful as Godfather two sort of overshadowed this one because they basically came out almost parallel, you know, and you look at the Academy Awards that year, it's like Coppola all over the place between both movies and the conversation didn't win any of them, but, <laughs> but it was just there. So, um, 
the story was inspired by uh, the film Blow Up. Have you guys, have you seen Blow Up? We, Brent, we probably watched that in school, right? Yeah, I think so. I'm pretty sure. That's that one. Sorry. So whereas the conversation is audio based, Blow Up is visually based. And it's about a, a picture that seems like it's one thing. And by the end, the photographer realizes it's, it's about, it's showing him something completely different. So he was very inspired to write a story off that. He wrote the script for this in, I think, the mid-60s and didn't actually, you know, it was a while before. He knew it would take a lot to get this film made. So wisely, he waited until he had his big hit and then was able to sneak it in before he did Godfather 2. Uh, the surveillance aspect came from a conversation that he had just casually with uh, with the director of The Empire Strikes Back, Irving Kirshner, who were uh, was another guy kind of intertwined in the 70s and the late 60s. And and they were just talking about surveillance and how that whole process works. And he kind of merged that into into his story idea. And and this was uh, the birth of the film. I wonder what this film would have been like had he made it before Godfather one, where he was, you know, he had done the rain people and he had written Patton and was, I don't think he had a clear style yet that he was, he was, it seemed like his early films, dementia 13 and Finian's rainbow were like all over the place. And then once he hit Godfather it really settled into a distinct visual style. And even though this I one, mean- do you think stylistically this one fits in with Godfather one and two? Like, I mean, I think partially it does. There's certain, mm-hmm. there's certain shots where to me, it feels like it, it feels like in tone, like the Godfather, but no, I mean, a lot of it, it feels very different. Yeah. I'd say like 25% feels like his other films and the rest is, is, is very different. Sure. All right. Yeah. Cause I didn't get much of a Godfather um vibe from from this movie myself but i'd be interested to know more about what 25 percent you thought well i think i think really honestly like some of the scenes where it's just you know when when it's harry call and and john cazal just talking in his in his what would you call that studio or his yeah, yeah workshop his warehouse workshop place, uh, you know, the scenes like that, that where there's really not a lot of uh, crazy visuals and, mm-hmm. and, and audio stuff going on when it's just kind of straightforward. It feels like, like that matches up with, with Godfather one and two. All right. So how do you guys feel about the tone of the film? I, I mean, to me, this film does an excellent job of expressing loneliness of isolation. You know, we see these long shots. It's a lot of long lenses and, and, you know, shots of Harry call just by himself and privacy, you know, you get, I, I don't know. I, I got all that sense. It's very cold. It, like when I watch the movie, I just want to put a jacket on or a blanket. And like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, get it's by the fire good. or something. Yeah, no, it's, I feel it's, he's very isolated. So we're, we keep spending all this time with him where he, and he's isolated by choice. And even, so even with the people he's working with, with, uh, uh, you know, he, he keeps, he keeps everything, you know, and and with, you know, Terry Gar, 
um, it, it sets it up nicely when we, when we meet her and then, you know, he's, he's just there and he can't really be himself. And she, she's looking for something more. She's looking for him being a human being to express himself, uh, tell her, tell her anything about himself. Um, but he's this very private, isolated guy, probably it's probably, it's probably his nature, but that's, that's also the business that he works in. So he knows it, it, it pays to keep yourself distance because you know anything you put out there is a vulnerability um that can yeah. be exploited so that's like you know he knows better than anybody um right. well so he's, I, yeah um, yeah i mean it, just to just to agree with you i mean i think his he's he's so paranoid himself you know uh, because of the line of work that he's in he's got this train of thought where he can't trust anybody and everybody's kind of a little out to get him in some way or another. And, you know, I mean, you just by nature force yourself to be in isolation if you can't trust anybody and, and you're too paranoid to, to make relationships or build relationships. Yeah. <clears throat> it's interesting that this movie, you, you kind of assume this movie is a reaction to Nixon and Watergate it's actually not. It was. Right. I mean, it was made before any of that happened. Right. So, it it released like right the what what two weeks before the Nixon or yeah. two weeks after or whatever. Or, yeah, I think it's it came out two weeks after. Yeah. And the audio equipment that they use in the film <laughs> is the same audio equipment that Nixon used when spying oh, on right you know, everybody that he spied on. Uh, so you know, while the other seventies paranoia films are you can point right back to Nixon and Watergate. This one, you can't. So that's part of what stands out for me about this one is that it is, it really feels in a way even more original than those other films do because it's not related to that. Sure. There was, I mean, there was the vibe of Nixon and the people suspected what was going on and, but there was no proof of it yet. No solid proof. And right. But I think it's also hard to, I mean, because the movie came out the same time that that basically came out, you know, it's hard unless you research it, you know, and you're just a casual viewer of, of the movie, like it would be difficult to, to not associate what's happening in the movie to, to what happened with Watergate. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's, there's no way to, you know, the whole energy in the country was, you know, about Big Brother and the government, you know, whether it's just literally spying on you and, you know, recording your, your audio or not, that, that energy was there and people, it was time for a change for sure. And, you know, the, the youth of that era just didn't want to didn't want to put up with it anymore and and was going to force a change and it definitely came later the the theme that i I really you know the main theme of the film is perception versus reality right so you know harry thinks one thing almost the you know while he's doing this job and just the more he listens to it he starts well, yeah, and you don't really know. I mean, that that's what's great about the movie. You don't know what the reality is. Like, just because he's hearing it, is he creating this story, this fictional idea? What if what if they said it this way? And, you know, what if that's not what they meant when they said this? And the more he 
you know, the more he gets involved, the the murkier this story gets. And what is it really? Who are these people? And what's really going on here? He's haunted by this uh, previous case of his where it got out of control and people were killed because of because of his recording. So that's probably one of the major reasons of his paranoia, his existing paranoia and how he handles himself afterwards. He's, I, I love the scenes when he goes to deliver the recordings and we see Harrison Ford for one of his early, you know, one of his pre-Star Wars roles right. of significance. How do you guys feel about his performance in, in this film? He's creepy, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not yeah, used not, to saying that. Not used to saying Harrison Ford's creepy. Yeah. Well, no, it's like he's a he's a calculating kind of kind of guy. He's you know he's just working for his boss. He's he's got his directive, and he seems he could be very dangerous um, for for Harry. So um, yeah, no, I thought it was I thought it was cool to see him that way. Yeah, I I don't know. I I feel like. Anytime I see Harrison Ford pre Han Solo, it's a little awkward. Like he just doesn't, I don't feel like he's found his swagger yet. You know, like everything that he's done from Star Wars on, like he's just got a confidence about him that is kind of lacking in his performances prior to, to that movie. Yeah. And so, yeah. I, I mean, he was good. He was to your point creepy for sure but uh, it was uh, it's just i don't know what it is about it when i when i watch him early in his career it just doesn't none of it sits right with me <laughs> yeah I, I think you're totally right i mean he hadn't hit his stride yet he's still you know he's playing very different roles from what we'd we would see him do later he was you know, he was a friend of Lucas's and Coppola's and, and, you know, a lot of these guys, there, there was so much partying going on that, you know, a lot of these actors were friends of the directors who got these roles and, and for Harrison Ford just doesn't seem to fit anywhere yet between his right. role as the cowboy and in, in uh, American graffiti to this role here where right. <clears throat> supposedly he, he, played this character as gay and with his wardrobe and I didn't I never got that sense until I watched it this time and then I could kind of see what he was it's just sort of a it's just sort of a different angle that he's playing that character at the mm -hmm. character didn't even in the original script didn't even have a name he was just mm -hmm. the assistant and once they cast Ford in it they expanded it a little bit gave him a name I think a lot of actors they don't like having characters that don't have names you know they don't like <laughs> right. player number one or whatever they they you know having been worked in on tv and film i've seen requests come in to change you know unnamed characters to just just call them steve or just call them so you can they can wrap their head around that this is an actual person so yeah. i could see it watching this time that you know, if you look at his office and the decorations and his wardrobe style, that there was definitely some thought or definitely more than just some thought put into that character. And he's creepy. You're right, David. He's he does have this menacing sense that, you know, on first glance, you don't notice. But the more you hear and it's really 
is it him by the end is it him driving this whole thing you don't really know do you yeah i know yeah that's the thing you can't trust that like who's in charge about this case you know about what they're trying to do and all of that but uh yeah i guess it's like this and him and also in uh, apocalypse now too right his Mm -hmm. little role in the beginning it's still kind of he kind of doesn't really fit (laughs) but he's there yeah and he looks so young like he's got his baby fat in this one yeah yeah so but uh no i yeah i i I see your point brent uh, and i yeah i do agree with that like there's I think it's maybe in, it's coincidental that he he comes off maybe a little creepy because maybe he doesn't really fit there. I don't know. I don't know. It's just a, it's a weird role. But I mean, I think it it really helps uh, helps with uh, Harry Call's uh, paranoia about everything. So mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that's true for sure. And you know, Harry has his vulnerabilities where you know he he suddenly opens up when he's talking about the business when he's talking about his work, but but then he talks about the specifics or about interpersonal relationships. Harry shuts down. So. You know, he's just trying to get his work done and he can't even trust this guy. Like I, he's supposed to give it to the director himself. And then suddenly everything, everything Harrison Ford is saying is, is throwing him off. So the paranoia sets in like right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, his character's a little emotionally immature too, right? Like, I mean, I feel like in that scene where he's back at his warehouse and, you know, his competitor, um, records him like he like flips out he throws a tantrum you know and then i don't know it's just some some parts of gene hackman's character uh are are uh i don't know like it just doesn't seem like it's fully fleshed out like i just don't understand some of the some of the leaps i understand paranoia in in that respect but like uh it's a little over over the top well yeah let's talk about harry call so He's to me, he's extremely private, but he's volatile, just like you're saying that that he can flip on a dime. And we see it in that scene where he's partying with his surveillance buddies from the surveillance convention. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know, those. Uh, and then when uh, played by Alan Garfield, when he records, when he secretly records him in what a pen that he gave him, like earlier in the film there's a microphone in the pen and that just sets Harry off. It was interesting to me that he even let them into his, his warehouse. Yeah, I know. I didn't get it. Like, yeah, <laughs> like I know why? exactly. that's a sanctum. Like that's where he does this well, work. I, I think I, I felt like I got a, a more of the film watching it this time that he was just, maybe he was, he was letting his guard down. You know, they're, they're part of his business. They're, you know, obviously John Cazale, who will talk, talk about in a few minutes was part of that group and why not let loose a little bit these are his co-workers if anybody if there's anybody he should be able to relate to it's people who do the same job that he does right so he lets his guard down lets him in he erupts at them and then where does it all end up well the woman that he's been he doesn't even realize he's been set up with by harrison ford's character has stolen the tapes and now he's lost all of it. Yeah. Yeah. He falls for it. I mean, his paranoia was, is kind of justified in a sense in, until he lets it, lets his guard down. And like, yeah, you know, the one thing he, the one, the one moment that his paranoia would have served him. And he, uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's, uh, 
I mean, I guess that sh- shows the vulnerability of just being a human being, right? He gave yeah. into a little bit of his his uh, ego a little bit, you know, bragging about how he, or not bragging, but he really wanted to talk about the technology, and you know, he got he got really he he got really excited to talk about it with everybody. Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, once it, once this once that guy with that New York swagger comes in and you can tell he's just an opportunist and just kind of like, you know, he's definitely someone you can't trust. And he, he brought him into his lair. <laughs> well, and he, yeah. I mean, he, the whole time is trying to not buy out Harry's business, but really kind of merge their, right. Merge their companies together. And he's already taken John Cazal away from him. He's hired him right from under Harry's nose. Yeah. So did, yeah. Did either of you guys feel like, uh, um what's the bernie bernie moran right like that's the that's the character's name yeah. played by alan garfield, garfield yeah uh, yeah yeah did did anybody else feel like he looked a lot like dan fogler from <laughs> <laughs> like fantastic beasts or anything i swear yeah. go back and watch it i'm like holy crap that could be dan fogler's dad well in I'm the totally off topic but i was just i, I kind of lost my uh it took me out of the movie for a minute. I was surprised. I guess we found our casting uh, for when they re re uh, reboot the conversation next year. Hundred percent, you could cast Dan Fogler <laughs> in that role for sure. <laughs> I so. do. Uh, I do like Joseph Gordon-Levitt as John Cazale too. <laughs> All right, that works. Yeah, and Gene Hackman as Gene Hackman. Yeah, <laughs> Gene Hackman's like ninety something years old i know i know he's just starting to kind of like i I just saw some recent photos of him and uh it was good to see him he looks very happy good i miss i one thing this movie reminded me is how much i do miss gene hackman although this is not one of my favorite characters it's been so long since i've watched obviously you know he hasn't done anything since 2004 but it's been a while since i've seen anything with him in it it was good to see him on screen again yeah, I mean, God, he's got such a, and that's part of why we covered him last year is that he's sort of a forgotten major player from our, our, our you know, our upbringing, our childhood. And he was in so many good movies and so many great roles. Uh, you know, even, even your Superman fours, he's good. You know, his performance is solid in Loose Cannons and, you know, some of those other films. Yeah. Even if the movie isn't. Uh, he was just one of he's one of my favorite actors from uh, our our upbringing that, you know, him and Sean Connery, like, you know, guys like that, Paul Newman, that they were just they, they were always solid. And, yeah. you know, now we're at that point where they're starting to kind of they're starting to drop on us. But Hackman's still around. Maybe we can get one comeback film from him. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Welcome to Mooseport and Lowe's commercials. Come on, you can't go out on that. <laughs> hey, he, seems, he seems fine with it. I know, he's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah, he's fine. Um, so part of what I think makes this film so interesting is, is you know, the way the sound is done, uh, you know, the editing by Richard Chu and then Walter Murch is, a, you know, a legend of, of post-production is deeply involved in this movie as he was in uh, God. I think he was Godfather two and apocalypse now. And, you know, Brent, we studied Walter Murch in film school. That was like definitely one they pushed on us. The, yeah. the editing of apocalypse. Now I remember just, 
over and over and over. <laughs> but it's so it's so key to this film, the sound, the cinematography, all the technical uh, you know, categories mixed together really is what's driving the movie. And because we keep going back to that opening scene, we keep going back to that scene in the park and hearing the audio over and over and over. And there were, they did use different audio takes. So it messes with you. It just like it's messing with Harry that, wait, are they emphasizing this word? I thought they were emphasizing the other word, you know, what, what is it that he, uh, he'd kill us if he had the chance. And it's what word you emphasize has a completely different meaning for what, what that is. But is that the, isn't that the only instance where they use a different audio track? I think just that one. Yeah. Well, yeah, it changes the whole goddamn movie. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) David's had it. That's it. (laughs) Well, I, I get that it serves as paranoia where we, you know, we get to see him visually imagine, you know, people getting murdered and how they got murdered and, but and and you know it's completely false you know while he's trying to like he's trying to figure out what's going to happen to these people and all of that but and then and then that that just that different take at the end it's like i guess we're not supposed to trust harry's we're supposed to be hearing it from harry's perspective so we're not supposed to trust harry's but it's tough because you're the viewer you know you're you're listening so it's like you you have to trust what you heard um so it is it kind of sucks. Like it's like, oh well, he heard it. He heard it wrong, and or, and now we have to we have to believe that maybe he heard it wrong. So then, they're the and then I mean it's clear they're the bad guys. I mean, but I mean maybe I mean he may be he's not narrating the movie, but like it's it's just from his perspective. So mm-hmm. he could to, he could still be wrong. Like you know something else could be at play, and there's just a weird coincidence, and he's imagining it when he's standing around in the around all of them in the office building at the end and like um so i guess it serves that paranoia thing like the theme of it of of that like loneliness and who you can trust and all of that but i don't know it's tough because you want to be the viewer and think you have an objective uh view of everything um but that's not the case and it kind of it feels like a slight betrayal of you know as an audience member um because there's no other indication that did he hear did he hear it right you know there's nothing there's no i don't know so like, well, I don't know if I like the ending. Like mm-hmm. that sucks. <laughs> Not but that it sucks. Also... That the ending sucks, but it just it 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 hurts as an audience member. But it's not just the audio that you question what he's hearing. You know, it's some of the things that he's seeing, and we we see a lot of visuals through like looking at Harry or Harry looking at things through something else. He's looking at things through glass. He's looking at things through plastic. You know, when he in the hotel room when he sees the bloody hand and the woman screaming, he is assuming, you know, we, we can't see it's a blurry version of it because he's seeing through like distorted glass. So who is it? The woman bleeding and screaming that she's being killed because of his recording that, you know, what did he record? Is it them having an affair? Is it them plotting a murder? We're never really sure till later in the movie, you know, and then it turns out it it wasn't that it was, it was the man being killed and he was the bloody one. And, and it was someone else screaming that. Uh, so it, it's visually too, that they're, they're messing with you as a, as a viewer and you don't really know where you stand just like Harry doesn't. Yeah. Well, but, but the visual is his imagination. We don't, but he didn't actually see a bloody hand. He didn't. Or did he? 
Well, we don't know that. I mean, we, but like, or like when he flushes the toilet and it's all, re- you know, blood comes up. Mm-hmm. Like, is that he, real or did, did that really happen or is that just symbolic? I think it's, yeah, I don't think, I, I mean, it has to be, I don't know. I guess you can't say well, that. How, didn't how, can it, how can it be real? <laughs> like, yeah, like, wouldn't there just be a bigger thing if you actually saw these, if these well, things were real? And there's no definitive answer to that. That, yeah, yeah it's probably symbolic of, of something, but. Mm-hmm. Could it be real? I mean, what did they they kill Robert Duvall and chop him up and put him in the toilet, flush him down the toilet? Maybe something. <laughs> something. something happened in there. I guess that, but I guess that's the whole point, right? All of this is not it's not a definitive story from mm-hmm. from start to finish. Like they're the question marks will remain no matter what, based on even if you've seen or heard certain things, you can't be sure of anything. Yeah, you know, and I guess that you know that that plays directly to his his ending where he the, he tears his apartment apart and still can't find how he's being surveilled surveilled yeah. uh that's uh, pretty cool and as, i thought as, I, as a viewer you're supposed to feel just as unknowing as as he mm-hmm. is as far yeah. as like what's going on so i guess at that point i guess that's just the point then so me feeling like oh well that's that's like cheap about the line change or whatever but like that's just consistent with everything else about harry um and maybe i shouldn't be trusting harry i shouldn't have trusted harry at all really right just like the way he would want it yeah he wouldn't want me to trust him i wouldn't want you to no (laughs) (laughs) well he certainly isn't gonna trust you (laughs) exactly uh but that you know let's talk about the ending too i i'm a big fan I, i love these films part of what i love about the 70s films is that you have to work a little bit as as a viewer you know, not everything is spoon fed for you and you don't always get uh, the happy, you know, it was such a change from what film had been previously in America that it was most of the time you got your happy endings and the good guys win or whatever that the hero gets the girl. And here comes the seventies where nobody wins <laughs> all your main characters either die or lose badly somehow. And their lives are ruined. <laughs> And you're just left with that. That's the end of the movie. Like there was no getting up out of the theater. Like, oh man, that was great. I feel good. (laughs) And this is one of those with your very, very dark, depressing ending. And that was just, I I think how people felt in the, in the seventies and your post, you know, like we said, post Kennedy, post Vietnam, you know, that happy image of the fifties and early sixties was just completely torn apart by this point. Yeah, very oppressive. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm a fan of of that final scene. I I think it's excellently done, and oh, yeah. I think they did a great job of really building Harry's paranoia to that point because he is so desperate at the end that he tears apart his entire apartment without even a, a second thought. Mm-hmm. Like very quickly, he's tearing up floorboards and smashing, you know, uh, statues and, and tearing apart the walls. And I can imagine that he knows he knows he's being surveilled. But where is it coming from? Where do you think it is? Where do you think the microphone is? Do you think there's an, even a real microphone? I think the microphone's in his imagination. And yeah, maybe that phone call never even happened. Or the, what they're playing is just, you know, maybe they 
I don't know. Maybe they, that was just a, maybe they had listened to him previously and that was a recording from then, or they just played back any section and he perceived it as that, you know, what he had just been playing. Right. Or maybe yeah. they're the microphones in the saxophone. It's the thing. There's no, there, it's not, it doesn't actually exist, but it does, you know, it's just, right. it's real, but it's not. So there's no answer. Like, yeah. So where does, you know, where has he, where does he go? Where does Harry call go from here? He's, he's gone through this whole, for the second time, uh, people have been killed because of his recording and whether it's certainly not his intention and, it's really not his business what happens. He's hired to record, make this recording. He does it. What happens after that? Is it his fault? I don't think so. It's uh, for him to be a devout Catholic, though. I mean, it's it's really ironic that he's in this business. Like, mm -hmm. like this is not uh, this is not a very Christian thing to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Spying on people and for money, and you know to be i mean clearly he has guilt over what's happened to his clients or, or not his clients but the people he surveilled or whatever um uh or whatever the people who died he's guilt about that but he's uh i don't know i i think he has to retire and go move away and coach a peewee hockey team and <laughs> try something new with his life but because this the, he can't keep doing this i think yeah, yeah but do you I think, think he could I don't I think, think he could. could. I think I he's. Know. I think he's on his way to Bellevue. That's what I think. Yeah, he played his. He he looked everywhere. He had nothing left, and he just had his music. You know, he doesn't have. He doesn't have a relationship. Where you know, he doesn't have anything, and he's he's stuck. He's going to be surveilled. I mean, like just the the surveillance camera shot of the and that final shot is just mm -hmm. like it's so perfect. Of, yeah, that that's his life now. He's always going to be. He's always going to be under surveillance. Uh. Or and think he is, or at least, yeah, be led to believe that he's never going to be safe and private, and that's the job he does, you know. So it's, it's like it's totally turned around on him. So, yeah, I don't know. I think I think his life is a living hell from this point forward. Yeah, of of his own creation in a way. Yeah, yeah. because this whole situation, he's put himself in this. If he had just handed over the tape and walked away, he would be on another job. He would have nothing to do with this but his own obsession with it is what dug his hole so deep yep and his insistence of knowing of playing it back over and over and over and really i mean it was out of worrying that it was the assumption these two people were going to be were going to be killed that he was trying to protect them when that's not the situation at all yeah 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 well, and wasn't it also like driven by the fact that he was not able to like meet up with the director? So like right. he ended up keeping onto the tapes longer and listening and listening and yeah, before he could deliver it. Yeah. So when he when we first see Harrison Ford, he he's trying to get the tapes from Harry Call, and he won't give it to anyone but the director. That's what his contract said, and that's what he's gonna that's what he's gonna do. So he hangs onto the tapes and yes, like you said, that he just keeps playing them back and keeps working on them. And this is where the, the, the story starts to unfold. And right. Robert, du let's talk about some of the cast here. So Robert Duvall is an uncredited role here as the director. 
How amazing is Robert Duvall? Come on, guys. Yeah. I mean, it's him. <laughs> he's just, it's great. It's Robert Duvall. Sure. He's another one of those guys. Always great. Everything he does. Again, maybe we don't love the movies, but he's he's got to be, you know, he's top 10 actor for me. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. He's a Coppola favorite. I mean, he's uh, well. Him and Gene Hackman were roommates, you know, in their in their I think in their college uh, era. Them and Dustin Hoffman all lived together, and we talked about that some of that in our French Connection episode. The uh, so you've got a relationship between the two of them, and and clearly Duval is one of Coppola's go-to guys. I mean, he's in every one of Coppola's films in the seventies, right? And I, I don't know, you know, I don't know what happened to their relationship. I know they there were problems going into Godfather 3 and that the Tom Hagen character was written into that movie and was a big part of that movie. And somehow negotiations fell apart and, and they've never worked together since then. So it, it's either I feel like something had to have happened somewhere in that zone that that they work together so well four movies in a row four classic movies and then never again after that uh, yeah i don't know but uh, do you feel do you feel sympathy for the director i don't know what to make of him i don't know you don't even get you don't even get like a medium shot of him t- talking t- right like he's just kind of in a he's kind of in a high energy kind of mode right he's well he's you always see him from a distance i mean i I think maybe there's one medium shot of him yeah you can barely tell it's i mean you can tell who it is but you can barely tell it's him Mm -hmm. so i don't know you know he's freaking out yeah it looks like you know the the recording's causing trouble it's uh, you know i don't know like harry's harry's doing harry's actions are leading to some trouble for this guy well, and we don't even, even though we, we, we see and we hear what we hear from through Harry's point of view, we still don't know who are, who these people are and what their story is. He right. an abusive husband and she's, you know, Cindy Williams's character is, has Fred, Frederick Forrest and they're getting revenge on him. Is he still really the bad guy, even though he's the one being murdered? We, we don't know. Or is he just, you know, is he not that at all? There's just really no way to tell what the true, the full story is that's going on here. Right. And I go back to, to, to me watching it this last time, I kept feeling like the real villain is Harrison Ford, that he's the one manipulating Robert Duvall's character and probably manipulating Cindy Williams and Frederick Forrest to get rid of the director. And maybe he is the new director whatever that job is. We don't even know what this business is. Yeah. I mean, what is exactly? <laughs> it doesn't so, matter. There's so much not answered. It's, it's amazing that there's so little, there are so few facts in this movie. We just know so little about all of these people yet. We're still so engaged with it. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's very intriguing because it's it seems like you can uncover the facts of the mystery, you know, but you'll ne- you never will. You can't never you can never really know the full story. I mean, I think I was sitting there watching, hoping that the facts were going to be revealed, right? Like that's kind of the big suck at the end is right. that it doesn't happen, and you're 
like wait okay yeah that's how it is yeah it's like what was i waiting like not that you're waiting for the facts but it's like there's so many little breadcrumbs to like lead you in certain directions and you're just like you're you're it's like we're compelled as human beings to piece it together and solve the mystery Mm -hmm. and then yeah it just it doesn't come Coppola originally wrote the Harry Call character for Marlon Brando. Hmm. Try to picture how 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 do you think that would have? I don't think that would have worked at all. I think I think um, Brando had changed so much as an actor from from on the waterfront and Streetcar Named Desire to when he did The Godfather and and he was really starting to get kind of out there with the way he wanted to portray these characters and clearly in the Godfather, his quirky choices for, you know, that, that insert in the mouth and, and certain character traits were uh, worked for that. Whereas, you know, fast forward a little bit (laughs) to your Island of Dr. Moreau and (laughs) some of the other later films that just did not work. And I'm, I think it would have been too risky to have Brando play this role i can't i i struggle to even picture him doing it i think hackman is kind of the perfect guy at the time yeah no i i i don't i, I don't know who else to picture in this i, I like hackman right. so much in this well and he looks like a regular you know part of what i always loved about gene hackman is that he looks like a regular guy he doesn't look like a movie star so when you put your Robert Redford's or your, or your Paul Newman's or, you know, even your Steve McQueen's in, in a role like this, then it, it starts to get distracting and it just, it loses some of its authenticity because you could, you know, they're movie stars. They look like movie stars. Um, yeah. So Hackman to me, perfect casting here. And it's one of his favorite, uh, favorite performances. John Cazal. Who's a John Cazal fan? The answer is everyone. It's <laughs> great in this. Another, uh, you know, actor who had he lived, I, I can only imagine how many great roles. I mean, he's probably got the best track record in Hollywood history. Five movies, five for five. All right. Godfather, one, two, Conversation, Dog Day Afternoon, Deer Hunter. Wow. Wow. And yeah. then he passed away. Oh, wow. how, how did he pass away? He had cancer, uh, and you could tell in the ma- in in Deer Hunter that he's, you know, he's thinner. He doesn't look well. Uh, he died. I think he died after he finished filming, but before the movie came out. Mm. And he was uh, he was with Meryl Streep at the time, and she was like devastated. There's shots in Deer Hunter where you can see them kind of like propping him up that he was that frail when they were oh, filming boy. it, but. And this is really, out of all those roles, this is the Kazal performance that's probably the most understated. You yeah. know, he doesn't have like a big scene like he does in, you know, Godfather 2 and Dog Day. And, and you know, he really is just a supporting character here. But again, another person who just feels so genuine. Right. Oh, yeah. No, he's 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 affected by Harry and and and... And you know he, he's a he's a possible ally and friend, and Harry pushes him away. You know, and yeah, yeah. It's uh, I mean, you can't tell how long they'd worked together, but clearly it was long enough. But then all it takes is you know that could have been the the thirtieth time Harry was kind of a jerk to him. Yeah, and, Harry's uh, mean to him. Yeah, and it's just like, ah, screw this. <laughs> I can't, 
I've quit. I've quit worse jobs. I've quit better jobs than this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it. You have the sense that they've worked together for a while, and I think Kazal his character refers to it that you know he's supposed to be showing him more of the business. Harry's supposed to be training him and really making him more of a partner, and he's not really interested in just being the guy in the truck and just being like an assistant and you know, doing what he's told to do. He wants to be a part of it. So when Harry really goes off on him and yells at him, like he's a, you know, a child, of course he's going to turn around and he leaves and he goes to, to Alan Garfield's company where the, where he sees him working at this other guy's booth at the convention. Yeah. And then you can see how desperate Harry is really like he misses him and he wants to have him back, but He's lost him. And then that leads to when they kind of all kind of have that party together. Do you think, well, I guess, do you think even Alan Garfield and Kazal are in on it when, uh, when the, uh, the, I forget the character's name, but the actress, uh, Elizabeth McRae, when she starts manipulating Harry at that party, do you think they're in on that? Yeah, they could have been. They could have all been hired to to <laughs> by Harrison Ford to to, yeah. to manipulate from the beginning. Because you see Harrison Ford at the convention, right? So yeah. you know that you know, or afterwards, you realize that he was guiding this situation to happen. Yeah, and clearly, like he hired her to get the tapes for him. So, but I don't know. I don't know if they're in on it to that level. They may have just been sort of pawns that that. Ford's character and his, his character's name is Martin Stett. Uh, All right. That he's using to get to Harry. I don't know, but Kazal uh, just, uh, the, I, I love the guy. I think he's, he's amazing. And I, I wish he had uh, been, been with us into the, God only knows what he would have done in the eighties. Imagine if he was in Scarface, I don't know what role he would have been, but it would have been amazing. <laughs> He would have been. Maybe he would have actually been Scarface. Maybe he would have been Scarface. Al Pacino, Al Pacino would have just kind of fizzled out, and <laughs> yeah, this guy, this guy would be. He would have been incentable woman eventually. Oh, his Academy Award. I could, I could have seen that. I could. Let's digitally. All right, here's what we'll do. We'll have the interns get together with their their Mac computers, and we'll have them digitally put John Cazale do one of those face replacements. The, yeah. the deep the deep fakes the deep, deep fakes yeah that's the, that's the term so yeah. we'll, we'll do john cazal in scent of a woman let's do scent of a woman scar forget al pacino erase okay. pacino put in cazal hit the bricks l any given sunday cazal all the way <laughs> there you go <laughs> heat um all right so Another thing that stood out to me watching it this time was how little dialogue there is in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's a quiet film. It is for a uh, movie about sound and audio. There's, there's so little dialogue, but the, the audio that's there is so important. Oh, yeah. it's great. Like the audio design and the, like the score. Are fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Really David Shire's it. score is. Yeah. yeah. They're both really well done. Yeah. You know, again, going back to the technical side, David Shire's score is so important in setting that tone. Absolutely. Just like, you know, other the other 70s paranoia films like Marathon Man and All the President's Men and uh, 
you know, the, the score is so key to putting you on edge mixed yeah. with. So Haskell Wexler, who's the legendary cinematographer, started out film, uh, you know, shooting this this movie. And Coppola wanted it to look and feel like Wexler's the film he directed, Medium Cool. And Wexler was opposed to that. Like he had another creative vision in mind. And the only scene that he shot that's still in the movie is, is parts of the, the Open, opening scene right? in the park. So he's, he's eventually replaced by Bill Butler, who uh, I think the same exact thing happened on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> so <laughs> Wexler started that movie and at some point along the way was fired and replaced by Bill Butler. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Although I think Wexler got the credit on Cuckoo's Nest, whereas they shared credit here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, all technically it's it's I think really a masterpiece for 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 those categories for you know all those things that they didn't win Academy Awards for that they in hindsight they should have. Like oh, when absolutely. you look back like it's not even nominated for some of these things. Yeah. And when you look at who won, it was uh Earthquake won for best sound that year. Oh. Not this. And the Towering Inferno, which we also covered last year, you can hear it in the archives at www.reconsinuation.com, uh, won both cinematography and editing. Hey. Now, everyone knows I love Paul Newman, but come on, like let's like compare those <laughs> <laughs> to this, and it's like night and day. I mean, how did how did this not get recognized for that? Yeah, was it yeah, nominated? nominated no it wasn't even no. nominated for those oh gosh not That'll even nominated i can't even yeah. get the nomination and this is when i don't know you know i don't i don't really care much about the oscars anymore but back then it really was really important and really meant something i think somewhere in the last like 10 years the the meaning of the oscars now. is it, it, right it's garbage it's, it's trash now it's a garbage show it was one time it was great now bad the obama <laughs> years changed the oscars the obama ruined the oscars is that what you're saying yeah it's his fault <laughs> like everything else i don't know i don't like i don't really care about the oscars but it seems like the oscars are at least more interesting these last few years because it at least you know they've they've invited more people and and things are not it's not as predictable anymore so no it's hard it's, you know we so used to good. do yeah we used to do those oscar pools and it was it was, I think the last time was like when the departed one that 2006, 2007 was kind of the last few years where it was, you kind of knew what was going to win and you just think politically and you'd, you'd win those Oscar pools. But now they kind of spread the love a lot more. Yeah. There's a lot more movies nominated and they're only getting one or two nominations instead of, you know, of course, sometimes you get a movie that, yeah, they get nominated in every category, but it's not as often as as it used to be. Yeah, I think that's exciting. I don't care. Again, don't care for it, but at least it's a little more interesting now. Yeah. We, uh, you have your own ceremony called the Munchies, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep, I do. <laughs> I do. I award movies. <laughs> my special munchie award yeah <laughs> brought to you by <laughs> who's your sponsor uh, this year uh captain crunch captain crunch <laughs> yeah of course 
So and Nabisco. My, and Nabisco. And Nabisco. Yeah. And Valvoline. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I, I always want front row seats for the munchies, so uh it's it's your pick for who should have won. We'll we'll be streaming live this year, don't worry. Yeah. On the Reconcina app, everyone's got to download that, and uh, you got a free ticket to the Munchies. Yeah, I just got a seat filler ticket, so (laughs) I'm not not on that. Yeah, you're there in case someone has to go to the bathroom. Yeah, exactly right. (laughs) This is the only year the Munchies are going to be socially distanced because it's a hell of a party uh, year after year. Yeah, yeah, Uh, absolutely. My Vanity Fair Munchies party is huge. (laughs) <laughs> the red, the red carpet. You call the it red, the blue, the blue carpet. Yeah, we've got the blue carpet. Yeah, and and we, you know, I like to hold it in a, a block, an old blockbuster video. So yeah, we go up to know. the last blockbuster, a blue carpet event, right yeah. into the, right there, and it's uh, it's a gala event. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, 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 uh. Who's hosting this year? You going with Billy Crystal again? <laughs> no, no, it's gonna yeah. be me. Yeah, it's just you. <laughs> I'm just gonna it. do. I'm gonna do old Robin Williams routines. So. Classics. Yeah. Oh my god. Anyway. Well, that's gonna be a good time. Yeah. Good time uh, had by all. Anyway. <clears throat> uh, there's uh, so. This film also feels very Hitchcockian to me. In mm-hmm. in I I didn't really pick up on that the first you know time or two that I watched it, but again watching it now, I really it feels. You know, if it, there are similarities to Psycho. There's definitely uh, using a, a part of the bathroom as a an instrument of terror. Classic. Like That's... no one's gonna go use the toilet again after this movie. I yeah. It was Ghoulies that did that for me. Between but... between this and Ghoulies, that's where. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never go back to the toilet. Yeah. Right. Just when you thought it was safe to go back to the toilet. <laughs> Wasn't that on the poster? I think, I think so. it was, right? Yeah, that's awesome. That sounds terrible. Oh, boy. But I, I, know, does this feel I like used to it? love those movies. Sorry. Oh, my no. God. They're so much fun. Yeah, they are. How many Ghoulies <laughs> movies were there? Three, four? I, three for sure. Yeah. None of which Gene Hackman were in. But... Uh, he wasn't in any of them, that I, uh, unless those scenes were cut out. Maybe. You know. Um. Anyway, do you guys feel like this, like this, could have been a Hitchcock film? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I feel like he would have done it differently, like very a much different style than Coppola used. But I yeah. feel like the general idea could have been. I feel like, I feel like, yeah, I mean, thematically, there's a lot of stuff there that, that, you know, would have been shared. I think for me, Hitchcock may have wrapped it up a little bit different because that wasn't his style to leave. No. Open. So many questions left unanswered, which, and uh, which I actually think would have helped the movie myself. (laughs) Yeah, if you take this basic premise and you make it in the 70s, like in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you have a yeah. different way to tell this story oh, each yeah. time. Like, yeah, yeah. The- you got Cary Grant as Harry Call, <laughs> and you got James Mason as probably Harrison Ford. And, yeah. Um, yeah. 
Martin Balsam as as Robert Duvall. Yeah. Yeah. And I, then I, you know, in in the two thousands, Emma Watson would have uh <laughs> been like the Terry Gar. The Terry Gar character? Yeah. We haven't even talked about Terry Gar. I know, yeah. yeah, we haven't. That was a random <laughs> Terry Gar sighting, I felt yeah. like. Yeah, she kind of popped up in very it seemed like very strange films very random films through the through the 70s and then the 80s sort of settled into what her terry garness would be yeah that's fair but I, how do you guys feel about how how women are portrayed in this movie that's one thing that i think did not age very well for me feels like a very masculine movie i mean i think you're gonna get that with a lot of the movies from the 70s mm-hmm. right like i mean that's just that's an unfortunate sign of the times, you know, which I think it's, it's great that we're get that we started getting past that, but we're, you know, still a work in progress, but in the seventies, it was terrible. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the 98% of the American filmmakers were, were men mm-hmm. and they're very, very they're guys you know when you hear about the stories and stuff they were doing while they're making this they're very uh i don't know they're like guys guys you know sometimes it it seemed like a bro club a little bit yeah (laughs) hey bro yeah but i don't you know because in this film women are either portrayed as by uh, by the end of the story as sort of weak manipulative or the villain Right. That's yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, if this was a conventional movie, I'd say that's that's a that's a bigger sin for the for for it. But the fact that it, this is you know, it's a big paranoia movie, and Harry has no solid relationships and and anything, and you know, none of none of the men in the movie come off well either. Mm-hmm. So I don't, you know, I don't know. Like this is this it's it's yeah, it's very male uh, male centric for sure um, sort of a world of shitty people yeah i mean yeah. Look, i mean just the industry that he's in i mean it's like you know uh but um so uh, you know again if this is more of a conventional film about a guy's some some man's personal relationships and all that like sure these th- there's no favors done for these women but um there's no I, I don't know. There's no there's no meaty role for a, a woman in this film. You know? Yeah. So well, certainly not. So you've got you know, it that's just what it is. I don't you know, I don't think that's a point against the movie, but I don't know. To me to me it, it stood out more prevalent this time. You know, Terry Gar just sits around what she's just waiting for him, just waiting for him to come by. She doesn't oh, do yeah. anything. Like mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> and why? Like what is so great about Harry Call that why why would she be so in love with this guy who won't reveal anything about himself or i mean they're like kissing on her bed and he's still got his coat on that he never takes off and yeah you know like he uh what was that coat was weird it's like a raincoat it's a raincoat yeah yeah but it's like it looks like one of your classic like like burberry raincoats except when you look at the material that it's made out of it's it it's like vinyl curtain yeah yeah shower curtain you're like what is is going i it's living in san francisco man yeah it looked like something (laughs) that should have been in like i don't know blade runner well i i think that was a i mean i think that was intentional that 
again, sort of going back to like, we're always seeing Harry through something and, and that, that, that raincoat is a little bit see-through and why is he wearing it all the time? Even, you know, like always, that's just part of him. Yeah. Right. Always Fair. part of always ready parent, part of his paranoia and, you know, he'll, he's always prepared. Like the if rain's it's gonna, always coming. If it's the yeah, rain's exactly. always coming. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess. Cindy Williams, you know, this is where is this in relation to Laverne and Shirley? Has Laverne and Shirley started yet? Because she's coming off of. I don't think so. I don't think well, it started right. She's coming no, off of this is uh, before. You know, Cindy Williams is is coming off of American Graffiti and. Yeah was almost princess leia famously was was the uh next in line to play princess leia what a what a wow, no kidding what a career trajectory you know change that would have been yeah well she wouldn't have been in mork and mindy yeah because that was episode. well that was just a spin-off of laverne yeah, and shirley so but yeah, you know Laverne. what happened to her after Laverne and Shirley? That was that felt like that was kind of the end of Cindy Williams' career. And this was, you know, she's in this film, but she really doesn't have. You don't know anything about this character. She doesn't have a lot to do. And by the end, you feel like she's the one of the ones manipulating this, and she's maneuvered and murdered her husband. Right. And then the only other woman uh, who has a you know a significant role is Elizabeth McRae, who's the only woman who's <clears throat> well, not the only woman because Terry Garr's nice to Harry, but uh, you know she's the woman that he's sort of letting his guard down with. And what happens as soon as he does it that she you know steals the tapes right out from under him. She she tr- she's a traitor. She's a betrayer. She, so, you know, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, you know, yeah, none of these women are, uh, you, you don't get a lot, but they're, but you can, you can give them a name, but you know, yeah. you, you have, yeah. you can have some choice adjectives for them, um, for what they do in the, in the film, but yeah. Well, uh, and there's, you know, you have to think about too, with when we look back at these films, the opportunities for women, the opportunities for minorities and for the, you know, the, the gay characters, you know, there's one thing mentioned about, about gay people in the film and it's negative. It's like a negative joke that Harry makes. So like the one thing you say, you make it negative that just continues to perpetuate that portrayal and the way they're, uh, you know, pictured by, by an audience. So, if the only thing you time you reference someone who's gay is by making fun of them, then that's what, what the audience perceives. So, sure. you know, even though this is a small uh, picture and, and as far as that topic goes, it's still just an example of something that keeps that going. So oh, absolutely. A, to me, like watching it now, that was, that was the, the, some glaring weak points in the film. Yeah. Um, you know, and the same thing there, with women. There's that... certainly there's certainly elements that in today's, you know, cinema wouldn't would have been changed, right? Like yeah. it just it wouldn't have been handled the same way, right? Yeah, like that joke wasn't even necessary, and the you know the only women that you see that they're you know there's just nothing 
nothing great about them. You know, there's, they're just, you know, different versions of negative. So, right. Yeah. uh, Just something to think about, but, um, the, so the scene, there's some deleted scenes that didn't make it into the final film that kind of fleshed out who Harry is a little bit more. I think it was good that they ended up not in the film, but, uh, they get into more detail about Harry owns this apartment building. Oh, so he does. yeah, Wait, where he, where he lives or yes. where? Well, that's interesting. That's why he's yelling at the the manager for you know opening uh, up his room and and he how he's supposed to have the only key because he owns the building. He can allow that. Oh, interesting. That makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, but... and there's there's a scene where he's like on the he's talking to his lawyer about his loud neighbors and how he wants to have them evicted (laughs) (laughs) from the building. And legally, can he do that? Um, There's also a subplot about his niece who is visiting him and that he has this very strange relationship with. And another, a woman who I, you know, from what I read was she manipulates him and, and basically like runs away. Hmm. Uh, you know, other things that just what it took too far. It took you too far away from the plot. So right. I, I agreed with the choice to cut those out. The the ending of the film was originally not going to be him in the apartment. The original ending is that scene, the that dream that he has where he sees Cindy Williams in the fog. Really? He's talking uh-huh. to her from a distance. That was the end of the film. Oh, wow. Huh. Where he's trying, yeah, he's just sort of trying to like plead and explain to her. Uh, I don't know. That would have been, that could have been interesting as an ending. What do you guys think? Well, doesn't that change it too? Because when we see it in the film, it's almost like he's still trying to save her. But then, so unless there was a a different plot point or something, I mean, that changes it, that scene, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Based on what we know. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. That's fascinating. Um, mm. It's, I mean, I like the scene the way it is and how it, it feels like a dream. That's dreams are foggy and unclear and hazy, and you can't always get your point across. And, and I don't know. I, I, I like, I like where it is. I'm glad. Uh, I obviously Coppola made the right, the right choice there. Yeah, I think, uh, and I think it's it's it serves him. It serves him as an in an attempt to you know he goes to a confessional uh, at the church and he he's trying to like cleanse himself of the guilt that he knows is coming. You know, I mean the guilt that he's he still carries from the, the old case, but he's anticipating something bad to occur, uh, and he's hoping against hope. But I think he knows like this is going to his work is going to lead to something bad r- with regarding her, whatever it is. I mean, if he suspects she'll be killed, but mm-hmm. if something bad's going to happen and it does, you know, it's like there's an inevitability to all of it. And it's like, you know, it's like someone on their deathbed trying to cleanse themselves of their of their their guilt and their sins before they die. Mm-hmm. And this is what he's doing. He's just trying to like, he's really hoping he can survive this. And uh, if he doesn't, you know, can he still get into heaven? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think this is kind of a, yeah. He's got interesting moral choices uh, for himself. Um, 
I feel like there there had to be some more deleted scenes with him just being Mr. Charlie Church or something. But yeah, more the the religious aspects, uh, an interesting um, side to his character. Yeah, yeah. This contradictory, you know, he's he's very religious, but he's also violating people's privacy, which is the exact thing he does not want done to him. <laughs> yeah, he's such a contradictory guy. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I wonder what Harry would think about today's use of cell phones and zoom and everything where all of this data is being captured, used, sold, manipulated. I don't think he would, he would, I don't know where he would be. He wouldn't be around people. Yeah. Yeah, I think he'd be living in Montana. Off the grid. I I think though that he would be, I think he would be find a way to watch and listen to people, but he would be, you know, way like up in the mountains somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. You couldn't find him. Maybe. Harrison Ford would know where to find him, but Harrison Ford would. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So let's talk a little, you know, let's talk a little box office. Okay. The, which is a, a little hard to track as we've mentioned here on the show before they didn't track the numbers the same way or as to the, to the level that they do now. So it, it's a little hard to tell week to week who was in which position, but uh, the budget on the film was was 1.6 million and it made domestically 4.4. So hey. it's a small release. It's not the again it is much more of an art house film and a an independent film. So it doesn't have the same release that The Godfather had. So while that is like the number one movie of all time up until Jaws, the you know this just comes in with a 4.4 million domestic run uh it's released on april 7th 1974 it ends up number 31 of 74 so it's actually you know way towards the bottom of of how many you know i don't think there were even that many films released at that point so it's kind of at the bottom but that doesn't really affect it uh, the way it's viewed it's not really this movie isn't really about money so right oh um, you've got Blazing Saddles, number one that year. Godfather 2 comes in at number six. And then this is way down there. I mean, talk about... Yeah, okay. <laughs> yep. Uh, 70s, it, man. Yeah, 70s. It did get three Oscar nominations. It got nominated for Best Picture, Best Original Screenplay. And, oh, I'm sorry, it did get nominated for Best Sound, but it that, it did it lost that one. Uh, it won zero awards. Coppola won, uh, you know, Coppola, ha- what a year. I mean, he's nominated for two different best pictures uh, and two different uh, screenplay awards. Yeah, that's both, pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, and I think he won both for Godfather 2. So amazing. Wow. That's a pretty, again, a pretty, uh, maybe the best three or four year period in a director, any director's history in, uh, in, in cinema. I'd, I'd throw that out there. It's probably a safe assumption, but research must be done. Yeah. We'll check. We'll get the interns on it. I feel like we did a movie where some director had like another run similar, kind of like three, three or four chunks in a row, maybe not within the same time span but then that was kind of it we, we were one of the movies we covered somebody, John, somebody was in there you're thinking about john mctiernan when we talked about predator die hard hunt for red <laughs> october 
That could be, yeah. That could be. <laughs> Again, that's a solid run too. Oh, for sure. But didn't I feel get like was... the Oscar level. <laughs> Someone recently, I don't know. I forget. Uh, so they did years later. They did make a TV pilot for a conversation series, starring Kyle McLaughlin. Hey, I don't know how you turn this into. I mean, I guess you could make it about surveillance, but it would be nothing like the movie. No, of course. It would just be like him running that business. Right. It would be M- MacGyver messing. with yeah. Kyle McLaughlin. Right. Messing Man, up that people's been lives. Good. Yeah. I'd watch, I'd watch that. Um, I know, Brent, I swear that you've seen this movie, but there is an unofficial sequel to the conversation. It's uh, Tony Scott's Enemy of the State. Funny. Really? So, oh, Gene Hackman's in that. Gene Hackman's in that. And if you take a look at him, he's basically wearing the same wardrobe as Harry Call, and he's a surveillance expert. Huh. So, they name him? Yes, he has a name. It's not Harry Call. That doesn't oh. mean he couldn't be Harry Call. So, this yeah. sort of goes along with my, you know, driver unification Whoa. theory. So, that yeah. there are I mean obviously because he's spinning out at the end of the conversation he goes into deep cover changes his name mm-hmm. yeah right and continues the surveillance business yes oh I want to watch enemy of the state again yeah so do I I, I might watch it tonight <laughs> it's well, on the list you should and report back because I haven't seen it in years but that was the one reason I think I had I, I think I saw it with one of my roommates uh, in college and named Cam. And <laughs> I think we we're Cameron highly Belden? Ine- Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think we we're highly inebriated watching it. So I barely remember it. Uh, but I, the only reason I wanted to see it was because of, because of Hackman. I remember seeing it in the theater. I remember liking it. It was a the huge theater. movie. I mean, it's Tony Scott. It's, it's Will Smith, you know, right when he was, you know, post Independence Day and Men in Black, and I believe Seth Green is in that movie. Seth Green might I feel, be. I feel Jason Lee is in it. I think it's Jason. Jason Lee, Jason Lee is in it. Yeah, is Seth Green in it. Oh yeah, because I think I think doesn't he, is. he play? Doesn't he play one of the guys on the yeah surveillance team desk? It's either him or Jamie Kennedy. I don't remember. Oh yeah, maybe it's Jamie <laughs> Kennedy. Maybe it's both of them. Yeah, maybe the same guy. I I gotta look that up. <laughs> I I went to the theater to see Will Smith, uh, yeah. and I I mean you know Hackman sure, but it was for I I went to see it's it's Will Smith. Come on, anyway, Will Smith eight. in the late nineties. Oh, forget oh, you're man. there. I'm in, baby. Yeah, hundred percent. Wild Wild West. David's yeah. all about it. This is before seen... Wild Wild West, right? Yeah, I think oh, this no. is the one he did right before that. No, Enemy of the State. No. Uh, this was like that. Enemy of the State was like ninety nine. It's like, you say it's like 98 and Wild Wild West is like 99, 2000. False. Look it up. I, I dare you. Look it up, David. I mean to say it's not in between. What's the sequence? Wild Wild West was right after Men in Black. This yeah, the I'll year. look that was up. It? I'm, I'm looking up. I get, I'm putting money on it. I don't know for sure. But I'm oh, saying. well, look it, look it up. It's Independence Day. Jamie Men Kennedy in is in... Uh, Jamie Kennedy. No, but it goes... <laughs> Men in Independence State, Men in Black, Enemy of the Wild State, Wild West, Wild Wild West, Men, Men in the State. You guys are debating <laughs> the wrong thing. Right now, I'm still looking for Seth Green's name. Son in- of a bitch! 
Anna Gunn. Right. Oh man, I didn't know she was in that. Anna right. Gunn. That's right. Jack Black. All right, he's in. Yeah, we're watching this tonight, guys. There's no. Doubt. Look at you. Yeah, we'll you get should. it going in cinema. Cinema thirteen. All, All right. right. If I'm wrong, I hope everyone's me... making fun of me for being wrong here. Uh, Wild Wild let's West. see. I'm getting okay. there. I'm I'm on it now. Uh, Men in Black. Yeah. Okay. Oh, music department. Enemy of the oh. State. Yeah. Men in Black. Enemy of the ah, State. Fuck. Wild Wild West. David, you owe me seventy five thousand dollars. Seventy five k. Seventy seventy five thousand dollars. Man, I missed a lot when I was looking up Seth Green. We can we can settle by letting me host this year's munchies. Oh, I, say, wow. I say that's a done deal. Okay. I just thought he was making big studio. I mean, Enemy of the State isn't a small picture, but I just thought it was all the the July seventh, the July fourth stuff. But I guess Enemy of the State, Enemy of the State. I feel like that came out in like September. So Independence Day. It came out in November, Black, November twentieth, even. Huh. Ninety eight. Wow. Wow. Ninety nine. Yeah. Damn. Remember when they filmed that at our college? I do. I remember that vividly. And oh, we were wow. like, "Oh, can't wait to see that movie." And then we saw yeah. the movie, and we we're like, "Damn it!" Oh, you and saw that. Remember when they burned down one of the ranches uh, by um, our school? That was cool. That sucks. Yeah, that was bad news. But anyway, we're we're sidetracking on on the amazing career of Will Smith in the '90s. But we sure are, Brent. If you're going to watch it tonight, please uh, report back about whether you feel like it's a true sequel or not. Well, I definitely will be watching it with that in mind because uh, the other couple times I've seen it, I had not been. Was Seth Green so. in Enemy of the State or what? Oh no, sorry, that was that was, I was in, I was incorrect. So it was Jamie Kennedy. I don't know. Yeah, how oh yeah, I for sure, that. for, for sure, Jamie him. Kennedy. Forgot Jack Black was in it. I don't know why I thought Seth Green was, but uh, yeah, I was wrong there. I was wrong. I, I think I think Jamie Kennedy and Seth Green were were kind of filling the same void coexisting at that yeah. time yeah yeah anyway fair enough uh so hackman yeah i don't know yeah this was you know you can't you can't uh you can't sleep on a hack performance oh you know? no he's no, great no, no. no. let's uh speaking of the hack let's uh top five hackman films let's bat it around a little bit we can rapid fire uh top five hack uh i will uh i'll go first Sure. Cheater, okay. Whatever. Number five. Number five. Crimson Tide. I love him in Crimson Tide. He's uh, that might be the role. I feel like he's most intimidating. I feel like there's been many a story about how Hackman, and especially on the conversation, how him getting into character and really finding, you know, who that character is was sometimes tough for him, and he was very irritable on set. Because yeah. he was part of that method actor group, and um, I don't know, Crimson Tide. That guy comes right off the screen to me is like, I would not want to get in that guy's way. He's he's no. he yells a lot in that one. Yeah, mm. yeah. Crimson Tide's a good one. I also had it marked as number five. Nice. We were oh. in agreement. Cool. Uh, um, Superman, number five. Lex Luthor. Yeah, I love him and Lex Luthor. Yeah, I mean that was the first. That's the first Hackman character that I ever saw was 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 Superman and uh, yeah, great. I mean, charming. You know, it's a different kind of character at that point. And I, I don't think he and I don't know. Uh, I think he kind of got a little bit typecast as in the early part of the eighties, just as Lex Luthor because he was so good at it. Yeah, I guess. 
yeah, there weren't there weren't a lot of actors playing Lex Luthor back then. So <laughs> just one. I and... guess he was kind of typecast as that <laughs> guy. Uh, okay, number four. I'm going with Hoosiers. Same. Yeah, we we covered uh, we covered it last year again, and and just excellent film. Another strong role for Hackman. Brent, who's number four for you? My number four is the Royal Tenenbaums. Boom. The movie that should have should have he should have wrapped his career up with that one. Yeah, that would have been a good one. But we would have yeah. Let him make the movies he wants to make, John. Jesus Christ. Who gives a shit if he did (laughs) Mooseport? Oh my god. Hey, Mooseport's all right. Go back and watch it. It's fun. I haven't seen it. I'm sure it's fine. He's having fun. It's fine. It's absolutely fine. Let the man live his life. Well, I'm going to say my number three was Royal Tenenbaum. So that was my number three. Nice. <laughs> You're just copying me now. Well, no, I, was, I, I really like that one. Yeah. Well, my number three was The Replacements. Ooh, bold choice. Put, putting it out there. That's a good one. That's an underrated movie. I, it is I, underrated. I really, I remember seeing that on our college channel, whatever. I don't remember what channel it was, but they used to just run <laughs> random movies all day. Yeah, absolutely. And I was like, oh my God, this movie is like great. Yeah, I just saw it recently. That's why it made the list. I forgot how much I really liked it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, number two for me is Unforgiven. Nice. Uh, yeah. No, that's pretty good. I guess Hoosiers, maybe. Hoosiers, number two. I have Superman. I have the Superman franchise as number two because I really like Superman 2 a lot. Yeah. Oh, Superman yeah. It's great. But. So I'm putting the Superman franchise as number two for me with Gene. Seeing Hatt. seeing Lex Luthor in the White House, you know that's that's a great moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, oh. Number one for me is the French Connection. Nice. For me, that's 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 prime Hackman. Uh, that you know, I wanted to put. You could put a lot of other ones up there: Night Moves, Poseidon Adventure. Um, you know, there's uh, the Mississippi burning. There's there's so many so many good roles. But David, what about you? Uh, the firm. He's a villain. He's a, I love him. It's great. The firm. Him and Cruz battling it out. Yeah. Nice. Good stuff. I haven't seen the firm but once in the theater when it released. I should go back and check that one out. It's Sydney like Pollock. It's it's great. I feel like I've seen it like four times, five times. Really? In total, probably. Oh, all right. Been many yeah. years. I'll have to check it out. Um, my number one is Unforgiven. I, I mean, I know yeah. it's on this list already, but no, he's so menacing in that in he's, that film. Uh, it's, it, I mean, I hate him so much, but he's so good. Yeah, so good in that role. So <laughs> yeah, it's. I think for me, it's my favorite performance. Is it's uh, I, and you know, I'm not an I'm not a modern Eastwood fan. That's like the last one that I really, really enjoyed. It's it's kind of a it's kind of his ideal film. So yeah, Western yeah. at least. Yeah, I'm with you. But Although I uh, like the Mule. I don't know. Did you see the Mule? No. Recently? No. Just check it out. Haven't check it seen out. It. Check it out. Let's give it All a right. shot. Give it a watch. So uh, let's circle back to the conversation. What do you think, guys? Uh, does it does it hold up today? How do how do you think? Uh, what would you rank it? Yeah, like a like a it's a it's almost a seven point eight here uh, for me. I think it's seven point eight. Eight. It's almost an eight. Interesting. 
I, this movie's strange for me. It's like a tale of two films, right? Like I like the first half of this movie quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just kind of, it reminded me a lot of the movies that we watched in college, a lot of like Eastern European, mm-hmm. like avant-garde films. Like I really like the sound design. I really like the score. Um, love the aesthetic, like everything that's old is new again, you know, that's mm-hmm. a saying and seeing all the dials and all the tactile, like knobs and everything that he was working with, you know, to do this, the, the surveillance, like I thought was really interesting. And I really liked him to start, thought I love the scene where he's calling the building manager, had no idea that he owned the building. So it puts it in different context now, but then that scene in his warehouse or in his workshop when he's throwing the party like seemed out of character and then he throws a tantrum and like then it gets super paranoid and weird and i just don't track it as well so i Mm -hmm. i'm not i don't know it's maybe 6.2 is where i can go Mm -hmm. i'm gonna go yeah that's interesting uh i can see i can i could definitely see that um, I'm going to go probably 7.5. So I think we're all kind of in the same kind of range. Uh, I think we're mostly in agreement about what works and what, yeah. what doesn't. Uh, I, I think the technical side of it, I think this is still a film to be studied for the yeah. technical achievements and what you can do with, you know, how much you can manipulate a story with cinematography and sound and music. Um, Absolutely. So I, I think it's very valuable there. Plus, Hackman's performance is incredible. And, uh, you know, it, it does feel there is a, a sense of it being outdated to me that you would tell this story a little differently now. And it does feel very much stuck in the, um, you know, that 60s avant-garde, like you were saying, style. But uh, so I'm kind of, it's a bit of a mixed boat for me. And, and again, for this, you know, watching it this time some of those the sexist stuff really stood out to me i just i don't know when i'm watching cinema now it really like i i watch it from that perspective a lot more than i ever have before and it's you know obviously we've talked about it's important to uh, review things of course you can't change what's already been made in the past and you could just sort of call it out for what it is but yeah i I, i'm gonna go with uh 7.5 so great so that's uh and that's the conversation. We've had a long conversation about this this film. So Yeah. Yeah. Uh and we've got only two more of, of Coppola's in the 70s and I don't know if we're ever going to talk about it on the show cuz they're perfect. <laughs> yeah, what can you can't say? Be, can't I, be discussed. What 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 else can be said about The Godfathers? I can talk for days, but no one would want to hear it. So well, what, what more can be said about them that hasn't already been said, I think, yeah. is the point for why yeah. we probably wouldn't cover them. Right? That's true. Right. Well, I think, you know, that wraps it up on the conversation. Uh, we might just on our next episode get a little bit more lighthearted. Let's just uh, I'll just tease it with that. We're going to we're going to jump ahead a few decades and get a little bit lighter and have some have some fun. So. Uh, we won't be we've had a couple dark episodes in a row you gotta shake it up and you know keep it keep it fun so feeling a little mixed emotionally I don't know (laughs) these peaks and valleys man yeah it's all about mixing it up 
So, uh, okay, just a quick uh, thank you and a shout out to our friends EK Wimmer for the theme music and uh, check out his podcast, Laser Graves, anywhere you listen to your podcast. And our friend Curtis Moore for the poster as usual. Don't forget to uh, give us a like and a follow on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're at Reconcinimation Podcast. Check out our archives at www.reconcinimation.com. And uh, give us a rating and a review on, on, what is it? Uh, it's not iTunes. It's Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to it. Stitcher, Spotify. Uh, it's going to boost the boost the show. You know, we've had a lot of, we've had some of our highest numbers as of, uh, you know, the last few episodes. So we're just, we're on our way up and we're going to keep going. So thank you for listening and uh, stay tuned. We'll see you next time on Reconcinimation. Take care. Bye now. <laughs>